Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Cushy. And I'm Anna. And we've got two mic stands now. (laughs) (laughs) We're real professional podcasters. I'm really hoping this improves the sound quality so that people don't complain about it. Yeah. Okay, so we've just come back from the voting in the federal election for this year. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? I feel like it's been a really anticlimactic federal election. Like, it's definitely the one where I feel like I've paid the least amount of attention to the respective campaigns and I've been the least enthused. I feel like it's been probably one of the dirtiest election campaigns. Really? Yeah, like in terms of like the tricks and tactics and stuff and how vitriolic it's become. Like I was just thinking, I was in, we were in Sydney last week mm. and um, just going past like Tony Abbott's electorate and that type of thing and seeing all the graffiti and stuff on his billboards. And I know we don't like Tony Abbott, but <laughs> um, I just felt like it was really intense and really personal this time around. Hmm, that's interesting because I kind of got the opposite impression I feel like, especially when Julia Gillard was running, the oh, amount yeah. of, like, vitriol, especially, like, the really gender-based vitriol mm. was, like, nothing I'd ever seen before. That's true. Um, who's that Who's that broadcaster who said that thing about putting her dad in a beat? Alan Jones? Yeah, Alan Jones. Oh, yeah, yeah, like... Next level. So, I don't know, but again, like I said before, this is the election where I feel like I've paid the least amount of attention to what's going on. True, but as we talked about last time when we recorded, all that stuff going on with Kate Ashmore and Mm. the other candidates and that type of thing. That was really dirty. That's the thing. It just feels so personal. It's got nothing to do with the policies or anything like that. Like, it's just next level. And even just the egging of um, Scott Morrison, like, you know, that was pretty personal. Mm -hmm. And so, I feel like that's probably been one of the key sort of defining things. The other thing is a lot of, um, I'm not sure whether or not this is featured in a lot of other campaigns, but with the social media rise, there's been a lot of unregulated um, advertising. So I was right. just saying to you before that like um, there was an allegation that it must be someone affiliated with the Liberal Party had put like signs in Chinese next to the official purple like AEC voting stuff so it looks like identical to the AEC's um leaflets except it says put one next to liberal oh my gosh and then there have been other allegations of people um like going on to WeChat and saying if you vote for Bill Shorten your kids are gonna learn how to use dildos and they're gonna lose the family weight like it's drawing on a lot of that um that rep the stuff that was going on around these safe schools and mm. that type, it's that kind of conservatism that I, I think we're seeing that's not being regulated, not picked up by the AEC or anything like that, but right. permeates. Because as I was just saying, I was saying to you before we got here, so my mom, who usually um, is very disengaged from politics and is happy to go with like whoever I think she should vote for, <laughs> this time was swayed by my dad's fake news that he's been spreading around like his whole Vietnamese community about like, unsubstantial allegations to do with Penny Wong and being aligned with like the communist Chinese party and all this Uh. bullshit that has now spread far and wide and influenced a number of votes like just even in like their friendship circle. Are those people in marginal electorates? Well we're in Higgins. Yes please don't tell me some of them are based in Higgins. I think the other person I know lives in a very wealthy part of WA, so that probably safe, safe mm. liberal, but irrespective, like 
But they've got a lot of friends in the western suburbs, so who knows? Oh, that's really disheartening to hear. Yep, so. See, I'm, I'm really lucky in that respect. Like, my mum only recently became an Australian citizen, so this is the first federal election in which she's actually voting. And my dad and I were trying our hardest to convince her the way we wanted her to vote. So my dad is very much a working class Labor voter, really big on unions and all of that. And I'm more inclined to vote for the Greens. Um, But unfortunately, my dad lives with my mum and I don't. So he kind of had an unfair advantage. What about your brother? I don't actually know about my brother. He's evolved quite a lot because once upon a time he used to be quite socially conservative so he was really pro-life. He's a social worker. No and that's part of his evolution I think. Um, he's much more progressive now than he was once upon a time but I suspect he'd either vote Labour or Greens but I haven't actually asked the question. Um, usually again because I'm so kind of disengaged and disaffected about this election I haven't really touched base with a lot of family and friends as to how they're voting because more often than not I'm that person that, you know, votes above the line in the Senate, numbers each and every single box, like you would know as you're waiting you for me. You mean below the line. Below the line, sorry. That's what I meant. Um, oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine if I'd done that? I mean... <laughs> Numbered every box. <laughs> that wouldn't have taken a long time, though. <laughs> yeah, there were only, like, eight boxes. Yeah. But, yeah, usually I am that person that is really engaged. And I still did number every single box below the line, but... I did feel kind of really not particularly enthused about it. Like, I got to a point pretty early on where I was like, well, I voted for the people that I'm actually semi-passionate about and now I hate all the rest. I just feel really discouraged by the candidates who were there Mm -hmm. and I think this week has been a particularly, like, bad week in terms of that for me. Like, so there were a number of incidents that occurred this week that really drove home to me that racism is, like, not an academic abstract concept that I know exists but, you know, really it's a thing that can affect my life and the people around me and their lives and that type of thing. And one of the examples was I spoke to someone who um, was working for one of the government departments and she was saying that, um, you know, she was working for a branch that's supposed to be quite progressive, but, you know, it was plagued with racism, discrimination Mm. and that type of thing, um, which is really depressing to hear because, like, you know, as someone, I don't think I've been touched overtly by racism in the workforce, but to see that insidiously take yeah. place. And then there was another incident I told you about where someone who works with me made some really racist um well, she encountered some really racist comments, right? No, I'm talking about the other example. Which example? The um, example of my colleague who made, like, racist <gasps> claims. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. So oh God. someone I worked with made some really racist claims about about Aboriginal people to mm. me and I was so shocked because it was so casual. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, so out of the blue and – I was working on something and then she was just like, oh, please tell me they're not Aboriginal. And I was like, mm. what? And it wasn't a matter of like, you know, it like being Aboriginal, it's not like an obvious, like, you know, having the last name like Newman or something like that, like where there would be extreme relevant, like not yeah. that it would even be relevant, but it literally came out of nowhere. And yeah. so I was just like, what the fuck? Also, I feel like this in this day and age, especially in a place like Melbourne, 
Even you can't if say shit like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You might hold those racist views, but you know it's not socially acceptable to express them. No, and especially to someone that you're not really personal with. Like, this was like a work context. And she's in a senior position to me. And so the other thing that that, that example really drove home for me was that people who are liberal progressives not understanding the minorities in which they're purportedly speaking for. So I have no doubt... When you say liberal, you mean like small liberal? Small liberal. Mm. Like I have no doubt that this person, because like her background, it's always been like altruistic, non-for-profit, very much championing rights for like the disadvantaged and marginalised, but she's also very white. Yeah. And very, you know... Middle class. Middle class, educated, Mm -hmm. and obviously has lost sight of... Yeah, you know, this is why having people in that in discourse for the minorities is always there's a risk that, that they'll be hijacked and also mm-hmm. these insidious racism that runs through. I mean, that isn't even insidious though. That is like so brazen to be able to yeah. When you sent me that message about that comment, like the rage I experienced, it was so visceral. I didn't even know what to do. Like what would you do in that scenario? Um you probably know what I would do in no, that scenario. No, I don't because I think you'd be a lot more strategic than what um, people would think. Like you wouldn't just go off at her and be like, you racist bitch. That's true. Because um, <laughs> you have to work with her. Yeah, exactly. Like I've definitely been in professional contexts where... Oh, with your cops? Yeah, especially cops, but um, also lawyers from time to time where they will say really sexist things or really racist things. And I do have to pick and choose my battles. Um, I will always make sure I say something, but usually my delivery depends on who I'm dealing with. Mm. So, you know, usually I'm accustomed to dealing with the same cops time and time again. So it's not in my interest to be like, um, that was fucking racist. Because, <laughs> Even if that's what you're thinking. Yeah, right. exactly. Because it's not only going to affect me, it's most importantly going to affect my clients. Yeah. And that's not okay. But often I make like tongue-in-cheek comments or I'll be a bit sarcastic Try and make a joke out of it. Mm, but they like jokes. Yeah, so then Concept they don't feel jokes. like they're being attacked. Maybe give them a donut. <laughs> you know what? That's actually a stereotype that rings true. Like when I was at, <laughs> I the, know. When I was at the Frankston Magistrates Court, the first <laughs> thing they did every morning was send one of the prosecutors to go and buy everyone donuts oh and coffee. Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm actually in this The Simpsons. Like, yeah, The Simpsons with, like, Chief Wigan. <laughs> Um, yeah, so those are the things that really depressed me yeah. um, across this week. And then to link it back to the election, mm. there are a lot of parties on that list that have expressed those thoughts and more. Yeah. Like Fraser Anning's party was that I couldn't even bring myself to number all of the candidates, to mm. be honest, because I was like, I'm, I don't even... Like, at this point, I know that that means, like, preferential, like, things might go here and there, but yeah. I just can't. Yeah, no, I got to a point where it was like, Fraser Anning's party, One Nation, Liberal Democrats, they all suck. Rise Up Australia, and I'm like, oh my god, which is the more racist? Which is the more sexist? Rise Up Australia actually has a lot of cultural diversity in their members. Isn't it led by like an Indian pastor? Sadly, yes. <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> I'm sure knows no bounds. <laughs> no, I have no doubt there are Vietnamese candidates. Also, there are a lot of self-loathing types as well. So you know. <laughs> All right, so on to our next topic of this week, which has been something that's really, like I was saying to you before, this really affected me, mm. which is um, the law reform to Alabama's abortion law. The law would take effect six months after being signed by Republican Governor Kay Ivey, who has described herself as anti-abortion in the past. Democrats and abortion rights advocates say the Alabama measure would drive abortion procedures underground 
and endanger the lives of women. You are always going to have those women who are going to have abortions. Senator Vickers gave some good examples. We all know about the back alleys, the basements. People are going to have abortion. The problem is it's going to always be unsafe, inaccessible for those people who are, have lesser means. When God creates that life, that miracle of life inside the woman's womb, that it's not our place as humans to extinguish that life. Lawmakers hope the legislation will help persuade the U.S. Supreme Court to reconsider the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling. So, um, what was the rundown on that, Cushy? Um, so, Alabama passed a law that uh, prohibits abortions um, from six weeks um, and only makes exceptions in cases where there is some sort of fatal abnormality, so where it is likely that the fetus is not viable um, and or um, there is some serious health risk to the woman involved. I think the most defining feature of this legislation, um, known as the Alabama Human Life Protection Act Lols. 2019, Lols. <laughs> <laughs> is that it makes no carve-out exceptions for children conceived, oh, not children, fetus, fetus, whatever. Doesn't make a difference to God's my view. precious gift. Yeah, <laughs> conceived out of rape or incest, which yeah. does make it one of the most restrictive. The most restrictive. So does that mean up until six weeks, no abortion, or still room for abortion? So my understanding of the legislation is that the restrictions still apply okay. from the period of gestation to six weeks. As So I recommended to you today explain the podcast, which mm. does an excellent episode that runs you down on these issues. But as they pointed out in that episode, I think I spoke to a doctor or something, mm-hmm. who said that by the time six weeks has passed, you are only finding out you're pregnant. Yeah, because you only missed the one period. Exactly. And you're only like, what, two weeks late? And yep. I have really irregular periods. Exactly. Like, it's not uncommon for me to go anywhere between six to eight weeks mm. from each period to the next. Well, um, I'm just going to read what the governor, who's a woman, Kay Mm. Ivey, said when she passed, well, she tweeted this. She wrote, Today I signed into law the Alabama Human Life Protection Act. To the bill's many supporters, this legislation stands as a powerful testament to Alabanians' deeply held belief that every life is precious and that every life is a sacred gift from God. Mm. This is very laden with um, religious. I feel like, like, I feel like we keep having this argument time and time again. Like, nothing's actually really changed. What about the conception? Yeah, like, the arguments are the same. Like, you've got the pro-lifers on the one hand, and I hate calling them that, actually, because they're They just should be called something else, like anti-choice. Anti-women. That's what they should be called. The anti-women folk <laughs> who, you know, talk about the fact that, you know, a fetus is a life and it should be preserved, and then you've got the pro-choice folks who are like well whether it's a fetus or a life it's still subservient to mum mum what is inherently contradictory about this and i saw it on a tweet or a meme of course Mm. is that they have this regard for this thing that i'm more than happy to kill 
to be honest. Mm. <laughs> but they don't have regard for human life when, say, Sandy Hook happens mm. or say we haven't, you know, and that is some proper running children being shot and gunned yeah. down by a killer. Well, yeah, ironically, Alabama now has the most restrictive abortion laws in place in the States, but the (laughs) most lax gun laws and the sort of, I think they're one of the most ardent proponents of the death penalty as well. So is the purpose behind that to just breed more children so that can get shot down, run over (laughs) or electrocuted? I don't even know. Because what is the point? If you think life is so sacred, then why aren't you looking at all your other life-affirming bills? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think... Well, my view of it is it's very much an issue of power and control. And unfortunately, the way that men exert their control over women is by controlling their bodies. Absolutely. I think that's true. Um, Before we were watching this, actually, we were watching, um, before we started this, we were watching a clip. Mm. The woman that spoke before, so it's been one of the most lively um, discussions you'll probably ever encounter in Parliament, like, theatrical, full-on, Yeah, I reckon people should actually watch it. Watch some of the debates. So after she um, made her point, she was like, you know what, I'm going to introduce an amendment to this bill just to bring some equality to this. So I'm going to bring the um, anti-castration bill because every <laughs> person who, um, you know, man that chooses to castrate their, themselves, mm. or it's the vasectomy essentially, mm. um, you're depriving that those thousands of children of mm. potential life. And I know mm. it was a bit tongue-in-cheek. I think she actually formally did put it through. Mm. It was voted down, obviously. Mm. But it's the same principle, like, in the, in the sense that you are limiting women mm. or, in that case, men's reproductive choices. Mm. And, like, who are you? Like, what that woman was saying, like, now you're in my ovaries. <laughs> what are you doing in my ovaries? Yeah. Like, yeah. I just can't believe we've gotten to this point. Even Vietnam is more progressive. Like, you know, yeah. developing countries. Isn't America the land of the free? I know. What a joke. Like, it's very Handmaid's Tale-less. Oh, like, I know. You know when people talk about, like, shows like that and they're like, oh, that would never, ever happen here. <laughs> We're witnessing it happen right now. Like, this is what happens when you become complacent about women's rights and things like reproductive rights. That reminds me of a tweet and someone was like, Dear US, The Handmaid's Tale is not a guide on how to run a country. <laughs> so I think this brings us to something important um, mm-hmm. and for us Australian view- listeners, who most of you are, <laughs> to sort of listen to because, it, look, this is happening in the States and it's easy for us to write off and be like, this is a state problem, they're crazy mm-hmm. over there and it could never happen here. But it wasn't that long ago that abortion was actually not that legal Mm, (laughs) in Victoria. Um, Before now, before 2008, I think it was, before we had our abortion law reform um, bill passed through, um, it it defaulted to the common law, which Mm. is abortion is illegal except, and this is per the ruling, it's called the Menhenna ruling, but the Queen and Davidson, um, if it is necessary to preserve the mother's um, mental or physical safety. Mm. And so that requires you to go to the doctor and convince them. And I I already had this plan out when I was a teenager and I knew about this because abortion wasn't legal yet, but I was already preparing myself for a potential (laughs) abortion. I was like, right, I'm just going to go into my doctor's clinic and tell her I'm suicidal because, like, I don't even care that I'm lying. Mm -hmm. It's my right and my choice. Mm -hmm. And so I should be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But then what happened in 2008? Um, so full disclosure, I actually used to volunteer for the now former state member of parliament that actually co-sponsored the bill that decriminalised abortion in Victoria. 
So I do have a little bit of background knowledge on this. Um, but in 2008, um, the then Labor state member for the electorate of Chisholm co-sponsored a bill that both decriminalised abortion in Victoria and actually um, made it law that women could get an abortion up until the period of 24 weeks without restriction. And then thereafter, they would require the approval of two doctors to sign off as it being in the woman's physical and or mental health to undergo the abortion. Mm. Um, So, I mean, my preference would be for there to be no regulation on abortion at all, not even after that 24-week period. But it was revolutionary. I mean, to go from a position where the actual procedure is a criminal offence to it not being a criminal offence and to have it unrestricted up Mm. until that period of time, that was a really big deal and meant that Victoria had the most progressive abortion laws in the world. Oh, did we? In the world? Yeah, in the world. Not just in the country, but in the world. Oh, I was thinking Australia. I was like, all right, cool. No, like in the world. Fuck. Yeah. Pretty amazing stuff. That makes me just have so much respect for Maxine Moran because, like, we've discussed, mm. like, she's a, she was a one-term minister. Yeah, she was never a career politician. But she wanted to get this through. And she this was a, a trained nurse legacy. and just said, you know what, I'm going to go in, do one term, but just get a lot of shit done and then get voted out. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. This is a legacy piece for us. And that's why I get really, like, defensive when anyone tries to chip away at it. So in addition mm. to abortion being decriminalised in Victoria – we also have safe access zone legislation, mm-hmm. which means that you can't protest within a certain distance of an abortion clinic or any sort of, you know, Murray Stokes type facility. Mm-hmm. It's been challenged in the High in the court. High Court twice now, I think, mm-hmm. or two cases. Um, it was dismissed ultimately. But even that I was getting quite nervous about because I mm. was like, I don't want us to go back. I don't want them to rule it to be whatever. Yeah. Was it a constitutional issue? I don't even know how it comes Yeah. Up. I mean, I think um... – you know, it, what they're doing in the States, for example, is they are not batting abortion altogether, but what they are doing is chipping away that's at what it. That's what I was going to say, So yeah. making it practically really difficult to undergo. And that's what that safe access zone stuff was about too. Mm-hmm. Like, let's make it that little bit more painful for a woman by having people heckling at her as she goes to a clinic to undergo what is a legitimate medical procedure. I had already, like, if they were going to overturn that, I was just going to volunteer and be one of those people. Oh, yeah. Like, in the States, I think a lot of the time. Yeah, I like, know, like in Broad City, when, like, yeah. Alana, it's not, it wouldn't be as fun as that. I wouldn't be blowing, <laughs> blowing marijuana into everyone's faces. <laughs> but essentially being that person yeah, that actually supports someone and walks them into the clinic. Everyone has a right to go and see their medical professional if they need to. They shouldn't need to fight to get there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when we watched Juno and they had all um, those protesters out yeah. there as well. Yeah, well, I have a really good friend that currently works as a doctor in Connecticut, um, but her family lives in Georgia and they have really restrictive abortion laws there as well. And while she was studying medicine, she did an internship at an abortion clinic. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Talk about brave. Um, But I was just astonished by her experiences at that clinic. Like, she would tell me each and every day that she would arrive and leave, she would be heckled at, called names, have eggs thrown at her. Like... It sounds like she was going into a war zone every day and all that she was doing was actually going to work. Well, let's not forget that it wasn't that long ago that um, a security guard was murdered at the East Melbourne um, day practice, Mm. which offers abortion 
Um, and that was in our lifetime. Mm. And so it is actually a matter of, like you're saying, it's a war zone. It is. It is, yeah. Um, both, you know, on a very, like, intellectual and rights level, mm. but also physically. Mm. And so um, you're right. It's absolutely about chipping away. I remember watching a John Oliver show and they were talking about episode they were talking about abortion and it is little things like, for instance, rezoning abortion clinics to not be within a certain distance of a mm. school and then making um, building specifications that would be impossible for a cash-strapped clinic to meet. Yep. So, for instance, having to have like a hallway of this amount of size mm. or having this thing there and it's just they give up because mm. it gets to a point where it, it's, well, it's never financially viable in the first place but it actually is financially not possible and not feasible to accommodate all of that and continue running the service Mm -hmm. all the while like you said facing these war zone environments like you can imagine the operators of these places wouldn't be doing wanting to do that and the only thing they're doing Mm. is that knowing they're helping get women out of a situation they don't want to be in Mm. yeah i think now um there is a deliberate ploy amongst different states in the US. So Alabama is the most recent example, but when we were reading up on this, we saw that other states like Georgia, Missouri and others have also passed in far more restrictive measures on abortion. And I think the idea is that they're actually waiting for the pro-choices to mount a challenge against these pieces of legislation so that they can go to the Supreme Court because right now the Supreme Court is more or less stacked in favour of the Conservatives. That's right, with Brett Kavanaugh in. Yeah, exactly. So I think they do want to kind of push the issue to the Supreme Court and hopefully get a different outcome to that that was achieved with Roe v. Wade. They want Roe v. Wade overturned. Mm. Like in that podcast that I recommended, Mm. they were saying the 1974 hearing um, court ruling, the Mm. precedent, is outdated Mm. and I can't believe that we are now going to be taking you know 40 years on going 40 years back yeah like I actually can't (laughs) believe that you know it's yeah it really is shocking and I think it's a it's a worthwhile reminder to like other people who are like Australian Victorian that abortion is not legal in New South Wales Mm -hmm. it's the last state I think I think so too. Yeah, it used to be Queensland. No, they they managed to. It's Queensland. I know. Like that is embarrassing for New South Wales. New South Wales is is proving itself to be extremely like not progressive. Yeah, I mean, but you're right. I think it's really easy to become complacent about this sort of thing, especially when we are in Australia and what's happening now is happening in the United States. But I think it's a really timely reminder to not take anything for granted. And also that just because it's not happening here doesn't mean there's not a reason to be outraged. Like, I actually am feeling really emboldened to do something. Same. I just don't know where to channel my anger. Same. Um, Like, that's what I'm still trying to figure out as well. And also, actually, one of the things that really annoys me when it comes to so-called women's issues is that I feel like all the girls and women around me are really outraged and are really motivated to do something. But I don't really hear or see that with any of the men that I know. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was – yeah, I think I was having a conversation with my colleague about this. But that shits me because – and the thing – and and part of me is like, can I even get angry at them for something they have no control over? But they do. Like, we've spoken about this before, that when you are a man, your voice 
carries more than it does. Like, for what I mean is they can never put themselves in the shoes of needing this service. So it's kind of like us never being able to put ourselves in the shoe of what's like a man thing. Yeah, but as in, you shouldn't just campaign for things because they personally affect you. Like, I'm not a refugee, but I am very engaged with the issues surrounding refugees and when there is a protest I do make an effort to go or when there is a petition I do make an effort to sign it. I would actually argue that this does matter more to them because um, if you wanted your partner to not be pregnant well yeah that's and true, they actually. cannot not get pregnant yeah well you're fucked yeah and yeah, as you're family right, lawyers like yeah you're paying a lot of child support for a kid you apparently don't want. That's true. So, yeah, even that argument can't be mounted. You like, do have not? a personal stake in this. Yeah, exactly. So that's what do shits something. me. Do something. That's what shits me because it's like, but, you know, I, maybe it, that's not a fight worth having at the moment, except mm. that 25 of the Republican senators that voted into it were middle-aged white men. Like, literally each and every single one of them were middle-aged white men. I think because we were watching the video of people protesting against it, like, in the Senate, and one was a woman of colour, mm. one was a, a white woman, and the other that I saw was a black man, and he was saying, mm. you, and he was saying it so emotionally, and he was yeah. crying, he was like, are you telling me if my daughter gets raped, she has to have that kid, and look at it in the face every day? And the guy's like, yep. Don't you think that's telling, that the three people that were the most outspoken about it were either women or people of colour. Because they're the most likely to be affected. This is the thing that shits me about America's abortion laws or any anti-abortionist is that, oh, okay, cool, you're all well and happy for this person to be burdened with a child they don't want and, you know, they don't want it because they can't provide the future that that kid deserves. Mm -hmm. But yet you don't do anything about it. How about you go raise the kid if you want it so fucking badly? Yeah. And, yeah, anyway, it just fucking shits me. Yeah, it's infuriating. But I think this is a good time to, like, check ourselves. Mm. I think we are being quite complacent because I was like, we're so progressive. Mm. And, like, Mm. our abortion stuff is all fine and good. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I just feel so bad for those who don't have the money, the financial means to do it. Because, you know, I was thinking about this. I was saying to Nick before, if it's in Donald Trump's interest for abortion to be legal. It is in his interest. Yeah, I mean, he probably fucks around heaps and has lots and lots of, like, love children everywhere. Yeah. But he has the financial means in which to get around it. And Mm. so what I'm saying is that for the most disadvantaged people who Mm. don't have money, who don't have the means to travel thousands of kilometres away, Mm -hmm. um, they're burdened with it. Like, and it's a time limit. Like, being pregnant is a time limit and there's legislated time limits everywhere along the way. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't get a particular decision made in time, like, I think I do remember that cut episode you're talking about now because one oh, of the girls like 23 weeks yeah she kept missing days. the time the, yeah. the limit and then I think she was stuck with it yeah so um so this was an episode of the podcast called the cut on Tuesdays so which she got me onto um and there's a particular episode that's called 23 weeks six days and it talks about the regressive abortion law reforms being introduced in various jurisdictions in the states and then it centers in on the experience of this particular woman um who finds out Um, at 20 weeks into her pregnancy, that the fetus that she's carrying is um, possessing, like, you know, I can't remember what the exact nature of the abnormality is, but basically was going to live a very painful and most likely very short life. Um, So she only found this out at 20 weeks, but she was then told that there was another test that could be done um, that could more or less definitively show whether or not that was the case. And, like, she got to, like, 23 weeks, bearing in mind that the 
ticking time bomb in New York, I think is where she was from, is 24 weeks. So she's in her 23rd week and she's waiting on these test results. Her doctor's not available. She's like trying to contact all these various people to get the bloody results. Mm. And she finds out literally like one day before she's still allowed to legitimately terminate. Mm. Like, yeah, it just really puts things into perspective, I think. Like, just about the, the time, the waiting, and, like, yeah, yeah, the waiting doesn't seem like much to maybe a medical professional, but it is the difference between her having a life mm. and having a life managing a child who's going to be in a lot of pain and probably mm. die very early and die painful mm. death. And this case was particularly interesting because this was a woman that really wanted the Children, pregnancy yeah. and wanted the child. Um, and the episode was sort of bringing home the fact that most people that end up having late term abortions in particular Mm. are people that do want the child, but end up terminating more often than not because of some fatal or fetal abnormality that means that the child is going to be living a pretty miserable life. Absolutely. So I think this is our sort of call to arms for other women. Mm-hmm. I think there's a protest happening in a couple of weeks in solidarity for... Oh, we'll have to go to that. I'm pretty sure you clicked attending. Did I? Yes. Okay. I feel like I've just been clicking all these like likes and like signing all these petitions. I'm just feeling like, oh my God, I need to do anything and everything possible to show my like visceral support. rage about all of this and yeah. my support for people that are campaigning for, like, progressive reforms. And people who can't access those things as well. Like, we only do these things because, well, I feel like I only, because I haven't had an abortion before or anything like that. But I think about people who may not have the financial resources I do to access these things. Yeah. Time, energy, like, other priorities. I feel like we're really privileged. Like, we are middle-class women. We can speak to these issues on behalf of those who can't. And if they made it illegal in Victoria, like... I would be able to have, like, family support or friends support to borrow money and Mm. go to, like, Tasmania or wherever else, you know? Like, but I'm thinking for those, like, girls, you know, younger girls who might be vulnerable, who might have been sexual assault survivors Mm. or something like that, those are the girls I'm thinking of when I am, like, you know, expressing my visceral rage. Mm -hmm. It's for them. It's not necessarily for people who can definitely find a means of getting there. So while none of us, neither of us have ever been pregnant before we've certainly had some really sort of close false Mm. alarms I suppose so the reason I was thinking about this was because of Jane Caro so when um a number of years ago I thought I was pregnant and that was because my body was like exhibiting all these signs of pregnancy like I was getting like nausea I had like sore breasts and I was saying this to a colleague and then she was like maybe you're pregnant and I was like that's (laughs) crazy and so at that point, I had made my appointment to go see Family Planning Victoria, which I highly recommend. They're a very, very good service. You actually took that step and made the appointment. Well, I needed to check the stitch. Wow. No, good on you. I mean, I thought no, you knew that. No, I didn't know that at the time. Well, you were definitely there when I was like, oh my God, I think I'm pregnant. Yeah, I definitely remember that conversation. <laughs> yeah, so I booked an appointment with Family Planning um, mm-hmm. and I just remember really vividly, it's, it wasn't until today and all this conversation that... I was that day I'd booked it I'd taken the day off work and my partner had driven me there and I was like well I'm gonna have an abortion and I think I very naively mm. thought I was gonna have an abortion in the day even though I'm pretty sure that's not how abortions work yeah <laughs> um, but I wanted to get rid of it like that weekend mm. I remember it being like a Friday and thinking maybe I can get it done by um today Friday so then I could have Saturday and Sunday to rest and then go back to work on Monday Mm -hmm. like it was all these things running through my head Um, but the fact that I was able to you know make an appointment with a 
provider like family planning who was so compassionate and kind and really understood like how scared I was and how much I did not want to go through with being pregnant. Mm. Um, you know, and in the end I wasn't pregnant, but they were, they had done all the examinations and done all the stuff and identified it had been um, a cyst likely causing a hormonal imbalance that kind of tricked my body into thinking it was pregnant, mm-hmm. but irrespective, like, that provider and I'm sure like other providers such as Murray Stopes and and that type of thing they're so compassionate empathetic and they are really the subject matter experts in the space of women's reproductive health Mm. um and another thing that came out of that experience was I read Jane Caro's book um it was her memoir plain speaking Jane but she wrote a lot about her abortion as well I think she had one or two but she spoke so candidly about it and how despite the trope of, you know, women regretting it and then it destroying their lives forever, um, she was like, no, nah, it's just a medical procedure. I just got on with it and yeah. I could get on with life. Mm. And, and the research backs that up too. That absolutely. Nine times out of ten women have no regrets about undergoing the procedure. And now we've just bought choice words, <laughs> which we're both going to devour. <laughs> but I think for anyone out there who's thinking about like their choices and that type of thing, it's really helpful to read about other people's mm. experiences. It certainly helped me during that period. Yeah. Um, but yeah, have you ever had any sort of... Yeah, I had two discrete periods where I seriously thought I was pregnant. Um, the first was actually around the time that you thought you were pregnant. I know. How coincidental was that? I know. At least we were there to kind of support each other through the process. But the reason I thought I was pregnant was, A, not being entirely smart with protection, and B, <laughs> God, taking a pregnancy. Oh, it's all right. They've heard worse. <laughs> um, but B, I actually took a pregnancy test and it showed up positive oh my god yeah so I was like shit I'd only been dating this person for a couple of months and I remember thinking at the time because I've got polycystic ovarian syndrome which I've spoken about before on the podcast um and I have been told that it could have potential impacts on my fertility um I did kind of turn my mind to whether or not I would keep the child if I was to fall pregnant with it and I remember being really reassured by the fact that in Victoria we do have up until 24 weeks to make that decision without any sort of interference from any medical professional. And I just can't imagine what it would have been like to be in a place like Alabama or Missouri or these other places with restrictive abortion laws and having that ticking time bomb and having those really narrow exceptions under which I could have the procedure. And I think they have things like waiting periods as well. Like you can't just do my hypothetical. I'm pretty even sure in my own hypothetical I couldn't have done, had an abortion in a day. Yeah, no, you're right. And um, even more so in places that do have restrictive abortion law reform because they want to make it as difficult as possible for women to undergo the procedure. So there are often very few service providers that do it. So um, they'll do things such as um, make you have an ultrasound and listen to the heartbeat yeah. and then give you like 24 hours to 48 hours to marinate in that decision mm-hmm. before they will then go and I'm sure do a pre-screening process and mm-hmm. then go ahead with the procedure. Yep. All the while being heckled as you come in and out of the actual building. Yeah. And like you said, every second counts. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly don't know if I would have needed every single one of those 24 weeks and beyond to make that decision so um yeah so that was the first time and then the second time was more recently and again because I've got the condition I've got did briefly turn my mind to whether or not actually this was something I wanted so having that time um and that independence and that choice ultimately um to make was yeah something that 
I just can't imagine doing without. And I don't think there's any woman who's listening to this now who has not had a similar scare or experience mm. or know of someone who's had a similar scare or experience. Mm. And I think you're right. It's so comforting to know that in Victoria, and that's the one thing that got me through that hard period because I was going through other things as well. Mm. And this is just kind of like the cherry on top of it. Um, like I was going through a lot of health wise things. And I think it's just so reassuring to know that there are very professional health um, professions out there who can assist you with this process and that you have the choice and they will empower you to make the choice because mm. I cannot say anything better about family planning. They are just such a great service provider and I'm just thinking if there were teenagers involved or mm. going there, it would be one of the best places to go. And they do not just like family planning stuff, but they also do just like reproductive health checks and mm-hmm. STI checks and other things as well. But um, that's so nice to hear, to hear that you've had that like personal experience and that it's actually been a positive one. Not just that. I was actually saying this to someone the other day when I was young, I was like obsessed with the idea of being pregnant. Mm -hmm. And again, as in you were like fearful fearful, that you were going to be pregnant. That would just ruin my VCE essentially. (laughs) Um, Classic Anna fear to have. But I think it was right after the laws had been passed and, um, yeah, I would have been in year 12, 11 mm. when it passed. And this goes to show sort of the um, privilege that we're in because the thought had never crossed my mind that I wouldn't be able to have the choice. Mm. Like I remember I was saying to my friend Amelia, like, oh, there's an abortion clinic near your place. And she's like, what the fuck? And um, she's like, how do you know that? And I was like, yeah, when I was younger and I thought, was doing my research, um, <laughs> I knew exactly where my closest abortion clinic was. It's near your place. You could actually do a 3D um, virtual tour of the facility oh and I God. knew exactly how much money it cost. I knew I had to save at the bare minimum, always have like 700 and something dollars in my bank account, like all that stuff. And that's for me taking it for granted, thanks to people like Maxine Moran who, cha- mm. who changed the law in Victoria and meant that for women like us, like we've always had the choice and we've got the choice to be able to, you know, go on with our lives and, mm. you know, save God's precious gifts from having a really <laughs> shit life because I would have been a shit mum at 16. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's all the more reason why we're so passionate about this issue because we, we care are about the kids. Yeah, we care about the kids. In fact, that's why we have We here. work in child protection. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know why don't you give them a snippet of like the cases you have to deal with like that Mm. is a consequence of where you're just not equipped to be a parent and again I suppose what it comes down to is choice right like if you want to have that child by all means have it but don't go on dictating whether or not I should do that it's kind of like the whole issue with like things like same-sex marriage it's like Make the decision that's right for you. If you're not a fan of same-sex marriage, don't get married to someone of the same sex. Similar principles apply here. I'm not stopping you from having a child if you want to have it, but don't stop me from having a termination if that's what I want. Also, if you're going to, like, make everyone have children, maybe America, you should, you know, bump up your social security, you know, actually ensure they can have a fruitful life. Exactly. Rather than condemning, essentially, the mother, and in most cases it is just the mother and Mm. the poor child, Mm. to... A life of hell. Like, mm-hmm. we've seen the trajectory, like, for you, especially as a criminal lawyer, you see the trajectory mm. of poverty um, and where it leads you to. And, like, I've seen it in my work as well. And we know the child protection system. We've seen things like that. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about this because some people just are not ready to be parents. Yep. Agreed. 
All right, so on a tiny bit of a lighter topic, but not really. <laughs> Again, relative to the rest. Um, so this week there was a really interesting article that really tied up a topic that we've discussed numerous times. So Harper's Bazaar, um, Melanie Hamlet um, had published an article in the Harper's Bazaar called, very provocatively, Men Have No Friends and Women Bear the Burden. So the essence of this, and I know it's, it's a provocative title, mm. but essentially it's talking about how toxic masculinity has led to this sort of, she calls it emotional gold digging by men. So a lot of men, instead of, you know, furnishing their emotions and feelings into establishing like solid friendship bases with other men, are instead using their girlfriends and partners and wives as that emotional rock. And as a result, women are having to expend a lot more emotional labor trying to deal with them. So one of the the first examples in this book, uh, in this article was from Kylie Ann Kelly, who was someone who um, her partner, you know, didn't want to go see a therapist, would just prefer to use her. And he was going through obviously a lot at his time back then. Um, But rather than talking to a therapist, he would talk to her and eventually um, she took it so much on herself that she ended up in hospital due to stress and exhaustion um, only to have him say that he was too busy to come and visit her in the end. So after all that expenditure, he didn't really give a shit. Um, And yeah, she shortly dumped him thereafter. Yeah. um, I I think I told you before the fact, but yeah, that particular example really resonated quite strongly with me. I think it's prompted uh, for me and between the two of us anyway, Mm. that conversation about male friendships. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's an ongoing conversation that we have amongst ourselves and other female friends. It's been a source of tension for us as well, even amongst our friendship group, Um, particularly when we relate with particular guys in our friendship group and them not giving, I suppose, Mm -hmm. as much as what we expect. Yeah. And so I think this article came at a very timely, you know, apt time because it just reflected that mm. so we've always said that um of our guy friends they don't really know how to be friends yeah I think um I mean I feel like I devote a lot of time energy and resources into my friendships whether it's with men or women mm. like I make sure that I call them I text them I spend time with them I get gifts for them um and that genuinely brings me a lot of joy to be able to do that Um, But it feels like the men in our lives are very content to kind of not hear from us for weeks or months at a time if we don't make the effort or aren't really in the habit of actually giving us gifts, like when it comes to things like birthdays or Christmas or the rest of it. I know, which apparently is fine. Yeah, I mean... I was like, isn't that basic manners? That's what I think as well, and... But obviously that's not the case. And there definitely does seem to be a gender divide when it comes to this sort of thing because my other female friends seem to behave in the way that I do. It's just the male friends. And so I think we've often had this debate where it's like, do we just get rid of our male friends Mm. or do we adapt our expectations of them? I just hate that it's been split on this gender line. So what I feel like this article did with that constant debate that we've had about the value of male and female friendship is that it's actually explained a lot deeper why men don't act the way that we expect Mm. them to act because from a very young age they're expected to not demonstrate their feelings Mm. like that and to other men yeah and therefore they do it to women I mean Mm. we have a friend um who I won't name 
But, you know, when he is very down and depressed, he has been quite reliant on us. But now that he is happy and not, you barely see him. Yeah. And so it's very much – and so I think what I'm trying to say is that in that example and with these examples, it is an example of emotional gold digging Mm -hmm. because you're – you know, coming to you at coming to us at a time of vulnerability, expecting us to solve all your problems, and then dumping us as soon as they're done. Yeah, and it's that, using and abusing at its worst. Well, that's my experience with like a lot of guy friends. Yes, yeah, same thing happened with my ex. Um, when we were together, I often felt like his what's the word secretary. Yeah, like, you know, it was Therapist. like all of the above. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like he would always be telling me about his day, telling me about his problems, and I thought, oh, yep, this is a normal part of our relationship slash friendship that you mm. share these experiences with each other. Um, but I remember being really astonished at the fact that I was kind of the only, like, person for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, like, like he doesn't have his mates. Yeah, it was like, okay, now I have a girlfriend, so now she's my everything. But when I would ask him about, you know, his friends and the time he would spend with them and the things he would do for them. I was kind of like taken aback by how inconsiderate I perceived him to be. But then he would tell me, oh, no, we all behave like that. Like we're pretty content to see each other every couple of months and just check in as as we need. And I was like, what? And like, that's I would dump my friend. I mean, maybe if that's how it works for them, because I spoke to another guy about this this week and he said exactly that. Mm-hmm. He was just like, it's just a matter of women and men approaching things really differently and yeah. we shouldn't be imposing that expectation on guys. I'm not saying that as a blanket thing. I'm just saying that as a personal preference. Like I prefer yeah. my relationships genuine and deep. Yeah. And so I think I only have a very select group of male friends now. I don't have time for people to leech their shit off from me. Yeah. But I must say that amongst my girlfriends, they do make much more of an effort to see each other regularly, to mm. check in. Like I get a lot of like, hey, just want to make sure you're okay mm. type messages that I would never get from any of my guy friends. Mm. But I do find that of the guy friends that I still am friends with, like whenever we see each other, they do unload a lot more emotionally. Yeah. And so it, it is taxing, I guess. Yeah. But that's the price of friendships. So I guess I'm a bit confused. No, like I think on reflection, I don't see the issue if the parties to the friendship have the same expectations of each other. Like I slowly but surely came to realise that my ex and his friends were happy with the arrangement that they had. And that's all well and good. But the issue is when one person has the expectations and the other person doesn't. And it's like, who makes the readjustment there? Is it the person that has the higher expectations or the lower expectations? Yeah. And then the other issue with that actually also is the fact that more often than not, when the man is going through a lot of stuff, he does have that expectation that the woman is going to kind of come and take care of him, and more often than not, she does. But then, like in the example you cited earlier, yeah, it's not reciprocated, and that's a really big issue, I think. It's like, what do you okay. do in situations like that? Do you just get rid of people that don't share your expectations, or do you lower your expectations of them? I think that's an example of um, that, like, Disney complex, like, the opposite. So I think it says here in this article that, you know, that – there's this romantic idea that women will save you or take care of you in, in the emotional sense rather than, in, say, the physical sense or whatever. Right. And so that it's a woman's role to be your therapist, secretary and everything else. Because another part of what you were saying about your ex was that I remember you saying, you know, when you're making social plans and stuff, it was always kind mm. of incumbent on you to be making those decisions and prodding him and like that type of stuff and maybe we don't need to take that on ourselves maybe that's what this article is saying 
Yeah, because men are conditioned to not be expressive, whereas women are conditioned to be expressive. So I think in line with that, like, I think women are nurtured to be caring and considerate and be the people that make the plans and be the people that buy the gifts and all the rest of it. So maybe we're also kind of falling into, like, tropes and stereotypes that society has of us. And finally, I think it is just a sign of, and I know everyone hates the words, but toxic masculinity, because if men are brought up from the age of, you know, five, Mm. to know that it's safe to talk to your guy friends about this and it's fine to talk about your feelings. I mean, one of the most uplifting um, examples in here was about a guy Mm. who opened up his own men's group. Yeah, that was awesome. I thought that was gorgeous. Like, we have a few men's sheds going around Victoria and Mm. that's the sole basis of that is to get men talking Mm. and they do feel more comfortable talking when they're doing, Mm. you know, like, or doing an activity like, you know, and let's, you know, try to move it away from the drinking culture because that's the other place where a lot of guys (laughs) are um, socially brought up Mm -hmm. to cope. Mm -hmm. Um, But to actually be doing like something constructive, like building, building something, a cabinet or something and talking about your feelings while you're doing that. Yeah. And so I think that's the one positive thing that came out of this, but I do think it is, just a depressing sort of sign about another sort of emotional labor burden that's put on women mm. without, you know, us. Yeah, just another piece I mean, of emotional labor. Having said that, I do think my friendships are like my strength as well, you know. So I obviously do end up giving a lot of myself to my friendships, but I end up getting a lot more out of those friendships as well. Mm. And I feel like men are really deprived in that sense. I know, and I feel. Like, if I, you know, when I was up in Darwin, for example, and I was in a really bad way, if I didn't have Mia and you to call on regularly, I don't know where I'd end up. And I feel really bad. Like, if I was a man in that situation, would I feel comfortable making those same calls? Probably not. But that's the terrible thing here. We do have a very high rate of mental, male mental health um, and suicide. Yeah. Male suicide is higher than um, than women's suicide mm. rates. And a part of that is not this. having those same support networks. Exactly. Yeah. And no, not having that sense of like that anchorship. Yeah. Like I think, um, who was it that was saying, I think it was Nick saying one time that he was in a psychiatric hospital and he'd met a police officer who said one day, um, and I'm just going to warn that this has some pretty triggering content. Um, one day he was just sitting in his car, he had his gun and he put it in his mouth and he was going to shoot himself. Mm. And the one thing that he thought about was his family and his children. And mm. so it was the anchor that brought him back from that brink. Mm. And so I think if men have that anchor, whether it be your your wife or your children or your mates, like yeah. they can be such an important anchor as well, um, then it could pull you back from that brink as well mm-hmm. and also link you in with more appropriate professional help yeah agree i think let's end on a high note um i know it's like without notice but i think our recommendation of this week would <gasps> definitely be top end wedding oh my god how did we not list that as a topic to talk about on today's podcast I know. maybe we'll have to go into like a proper because i feel like we're running out of time but a proper analysis about it but we saw this last night it was so good it was so nostalgic filled and I did my very best to not like talk throughout it and be pointing at each and every place that I'd been up in the top end I feel like those two rich ladies behind us were talking really loud and annoyingly that's what I thought and I kept being really worried they were gonna say something like culturally inappropriate (laughs) because they were so like um so in the movie the I don't even know the characters names anymore Neither do I, but what's the, what's the boyfriend's name, the white boyfriend? 
I don't know, the hot guy. <laughs> that guy. Um, his mum seems a bit posh. And she was saying oh, yeah. initially some inappropriate stuff in the car. Like, oh, we're going to be like. Surrounded by didgeridoos. Mm-hmm. And... I felt like that's what those, that old um, group of friends, two friends, I think, were going to yeah. say when we were sitting in the cinema. We were watching the movie in the, the classic Elston in Elston Wick, so. I was concerned. I thought we'd hear a lot of racist <laughs> shit, but it was, it was so such a beautiful. Good movie. It was, yeah, like, I'm usually not one for romantic comedies, but I would pay to watch this movie, like, time and time again. It was just such a beautiful love story. I don't think it's fair to call it a romantic comedy, to be honest. No, actually. Well, actually, you're quite right. I think it's a, if you're going to call it a romance, it's a romance to herself and the country. Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. I think the romance is between her and her family and in particular her and her mother and then also her and the Northern Territory. And she's written numerous times, she's said numerous times in interviews, it was her love letter to the Northern Territory. I just want to go back and I am going back. So I'm really excited. That's probably why. I reckon (laughs) if like the Australian government was a ScoMo's, like tourism office if they needed something to showcase australia that yeah. movie is it yeah agreed i'm so happy it's being nominated for i think they're showing at the Cannes film festival like it's, wow. it's actually getting international traction That's fantastic. and not only that but a lot of the actors are very very well renowned because i thought i'd recognize her dad yeah yeah um, all of the faces look very familiar he used to be in the bill He's British. Oh. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was like, I knew I knew him from somewhere. He played the everyday Australian. Oh, he played very, very well. Because, well. <laughs> like, he's not like that in, in other shows. Yeah. But aside from that, the music. Oh, it was, like, all Aboriginal music. And, and all territory. music specific to the territory. Like, it was obviously very clearly written by someone that has an affinity for the territory. And obviously, like you mentioned, Miranda Tapsell, who is so the lead good. in the movie and, and she the writer. Um, she was born in Darwin and grew up in and around different parts of the territory. And it really showed. Um, and it's just great. Yeah, seeing a movie from a different perspective, like a woman of colour. I'm so used to seeing movies when they are centred on like Aboriginal people being really dark and depressing <laughs> and about things that are really political. And it's like... You know what? Like this is just an a love a love story, yeah, a wedding. It's just something. Yeah, and they just happen through. to be indigenous. Like there's nothing like, you know, what's the word like that I'm looking for here? I don't. Oh, it wasn't like trying to be preachy or anything. No, it was just yeah. It was just a story. That it was, was just written. A story. It was genuinely written really well. Like, and I know like there's a lot of a lot of the time there's a risk that this is um, people would say, oh, it's a tokenistically mm. Aboriginal film, and that you know. Um, She's just getting the line. Yeah. Yeah, Like she's she's Aboriginal, blah, blah, blah. Certainly not the case. Like I reckon it will be critically acclaimed because it was just done really well and the storyline was really good and like, oh, it was just a beautiful movie. Yeah. I left feeling it so uplifted. The story between her and her mum was gorgeous. Yeah. I, yeah, I think we both highly recommend. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually. No. I've forgotten about it. And I think we can properly talk about it another time. But I just, I think I'm going to have to see it again. Yeah, and I'm going to have to go to Darwin again. (laughs) All right, well, that's all we have time for today. um, And we'll see you guys around soon. Bye.